Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. Really excited about spending some time with uh, former Congressman Rick Keller. He's going to be on the program today. He's got a very interesting book uh, that's uh, out there. and He has a very interesting story. And uh, Congressman, welcome to the program. Um, you know, I, was, I, I did a little bit of uh, research about your uh, experience, your experience in Washington, and uh, as well as your work since then. And uh, glad to have you on the program. Uh, you know, frankly, when I look at your story and some of the things that you talk about and focus on, they really personally resonate with me. And uh, glad to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Kevin. I'm really excited to be with you and, and your viewers, or listeners, rather, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, your political career. I think you were in Congress for, what, around six years? Is that right? I was here for eight years. I came in with George W. and left with George W. Same same time frame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a really interesting cycle. I guess you were part of the, uh, uh, you know, the Obama, uh, Obama tidal wave. So yeah, I was a part of the Obama wave uh, at the end. It's it's kind of a, yeah. a funny story. When I when I ran for office in 2000, there were three big races: me and Pence and this guy from Illinois, and and I won, and Pence won, and the guy from Illinois lost the House seat by 31 points. And I I always wondered what happened to him, and I I found out a little bit later. Uh, his name is Barack Obama. <laughs> That's the guy who <laughs> lost. And, and so when he when he, when he uh, ran for president in 2008, he, he carried not just a nation, but Florida, my district, my city, my my precinct, my congressional district. So all of us Republicans and swing seats got got swept out. So my tour of duty was over, but eight years is plenty long, and I and I enjoyed the time there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and if I recall correctly, you were you ran against Ellen Grayson. Is that correct? He was on the ballot uh, for that thing, but uh, you know it really didn't matter who it was. Every single Democrat up and down the ballot in my area won. You know, uh, but yes, he was uh, he was the guy uh, on that particular day. Yeah, well, Alan Grayson though is the kind of guy that when I watched, I'm so glad he ran for U.S. Senate and went nowhere because he's really hard to watch. And it's like, uh oh, I got to change the channel. Uh, you know, I wonder what's going on the Weather Channel. You know, and that's like when weather seemed a little boring compared to that. Uh, you know, and and uh, he was one of those guys that if I ran against him, um, I think I'd be done with politics too. Which I noticed you haven't done much in that space since then. It's like he, it's not that he's you know an amazing politician or whatever, but he's so grating. And I love how he's a politician for the people while being the eleventh uh, richest member of Congress, I believe, when he served. I mean, it's an interesting, an interesting uh, dynamic. Yeah, and, and my style is more lifting people up and bringing them together. So we're we're not not the same cat, but you know, and I kind of stick with my my style, and that's 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 why I wrote this book, right? Uh, Chase the Bears. I really wanted to. Part one is about lifting people up and helping them achieve their goals and giving them a step-by-step formula for do it. And then part two is more the business side of how do you how do you connect with people in terms of both humor and civility and and networking. And so I, I write about that as well. Yeah, and when I first saw the title of your book, I thought it had something to do with Ukraine going after Russians uh, because you know the Russian. Russian bears, right? 
chasing bears. Right. But no, it has nothing to do with that. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, think, uh, I think you really nail it. And, and I think it's interesting to see someone, because I worked in D.C. I was an aide to a U.S. senator, worked for think tanks, uh, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm familiar with that culture. And really a lot of the stuff that you're about now doesn't even rub well with the culture back in the 80s when I was there, let alone, uh, you know, with the situation now where it's so incredibly toxic. Yeah, my my focus truly is uh, bringing people together. So I, I focus on civility, you know, and, and, and I think right now the number one route problem in, in D.C. is the erosion of civility. And you've got screaming, talking heads and divisive politicians and Twitter trolls. I, I think it's a big problem. I, I think we can turn it around, but I, I think it's a big issue. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about the book. So you, you when you ha- began to write this, and by the way, people need to just just look Rick, Rick Keller up, uh, you know, on on YouTube. Um, your your ability to engage and, and disarm, and uh, really take the toxicity out of out of uh, situations, and really to laugh at yourself and laugh at situations. I think is, is so needed in our culture today. Uh, but talk about when you wrote the book. You know, who you had in mind, what you had in mind. Kind of tell me what was running through your head. So I didn't meet my dad till I was 14 years old. And at the first meeting, kind of an emotional meeting, as you might imagine, he handed me this little thin paperback book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And something to the effect, I know I haven't been there for you, but but this book changed my life, Rick, and I, w- I want you to read it because I think it's going to change yours. And so I really wasn't ready to call this guy dad. He was like a stranger to me. But, but three years later, I, I was ready to call him dad, and I had read that book six times, and I'm like, I'm going to put this formula to a test. And I set a goal to be first in my class in college with a 4.0, and I was a very mediocre student in high school when I set it, and that happened. And then I used the same formula to set a goal to get elected to Congress, and I wanted to help other poor kids go to college and that happened and so now that I'm older in my 50s I I was thinking man it would be really cool to write a book that would help other young people achieve their dreams and goals and give them that same secret formula but do it with modern day people that they know Steve Jobs and Dolly Parton and and Steve Harvey and and famous successful business people and and actors that they they could relate to. And so that's what I did, and that was my motivation for writing the book. In terms of self-deprecating humor, yeah, I did a TED Talk called The Power of Self-Deprecating Humor, and I have a chapter in the book. The reason is I think it's the number one best-kept secret weapon that business people don't use. I think it helps you connect with people. I think it lowers walls, deflects criticism. And there's studies that I cite in my book, and I'll just give you one from the business world. There's a very clever researcher at Seattle University, and she did a study where she had a CEO. CEO introduced a new employee and did it three ways. The first time he said, I'm so glad Pat took this job despite knowing everything about me, self-deprecating. The second time was negative. I'm so glad Pat took this job despite knowing everything about you. And then third time, no, no humor. I'm so glad Pat took this job. And what it found was is that the CEO who used self-deprecating humor was ranked to be a better leader, more trustworthy, more likable. And the reason was when you use self-deprecating humor and you're an executive CEO, it minimizes the status differences between you and, and the employees. So it's a very powerful tool. Uh, 
people don't use it because they're they've been conditioned to be to pre- present a perfect image to the outside world. Fake it till you make it. Never let them see you sweat. Put your best foot forward. And my view is the truth is exactly the opposite. I think you connect with people by being vulnerable and authentic and real. And it takes self confidence to be able to say, "Hey, I know I'm flawed, but I'm still a good guy, and I want you to believe in me." Yeah, I love that. And, you know, and, and when, when you sit there and you talk about this, uh, Rick, that there's so many things that go through my mind even beyond that, right? Like, for example, if you want a team that's made up of owners and not victims, you've got to be able to point out your own flaws, preferably in a humorous sort of way and not in a, you know, group therapy way. <laughs> but you've got to be able to point out your own flaws, you know, to show, hey, no one's perfect here. We're not looking for perfection. Uh, look at my own mistakes as I laugh at them, and it creates a situation where you develop a culture of owners. You you demystify the idea of owning your your issues or your mistakes. And in addition, I think it's a great way of reminding ourselves as we practice self-deprecating humor that we do make mistakes. They're based on reality. You know, I know I, I try to use it all the time. You know, and I went through a whole history about the, about this. Uh, you know, I, I, in in my family of origin. It was almost, well, it wasn't almost. It was used in an abusive sort of way. The humor about me was in an abusive sort of way. And so I became very fearful of that, you know, type, type of humor. And, and I began to associate, uh, I'm not being taken seriously if they're making fun of me, which may or may not be true. You know, it doesn't matter. But if I'm making fun of me, I don't really mind if people make fun of me, too. It's like, oh, my joke is resonating. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they, they catch on. And, and in the meanwhile, meantime, it really takes away a lot of those um, chains of, uh, you know, chains of shame, if you will, when you're able to do it for yourself and really for yourself, not to yourself. And it's oddly empowering, and it's had a profoundly powerful impact on my own personal success over the years when I was able to make that uh, that churn. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and especially in today's culture where everybody's playing the victim and you're on eggshells because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings or be politically incorrect – Self-deprecating humor is safe, man. I mean, you're the target, you know, and, and the higher you are up on the ladder, the, the the better it works. And so I got, I discovered it because when I was a young guy, I graduated from Vanderbilt Law School. I met Jeb Bush and he was a young guy, never held elective office and was running for governor. And they were hitting him for essentially being, running on his dad's coattails. And so I became his joke writer for that campaign and volunteer position. And he opened up every speech with a line I wrote. And it was essentially... One of my opponents has accused me of running on my on my dad's coattails. Well, to show that I'm running on my own merits, I'm going to go ahead and change my last name. Now, I don't know what I'm changing to yet, but it's either going to be Reagan or Eisenhower. And audiences <laughs> would laugh, and and they connected with this guy, and he went on to become governor, you know. And 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 his first year in the governor mansion, I thought I'm going to run for Congress, and they hit me because I didn't have any political experience, and both my opponents had eight years, and, and one of them called me an amateur in a debate, and everybody, like you could hear a pen drop, like that was the biggest insult, and that meant nothing. I said, you know what? I am an amateur, but it was amateurs who built Noah's Ark and professionals who built the Titanic, and I didn't hear about that issue anymore. That, that issue was done with. As long as wow. people could see, hey, hey, you could, you're, it's not a big deal to you. you. You can poke fun of yourself. You can take it lightly. They're, they're comfortable. They, the, the more important thing is how you react to it. And I just want to say to your um, 
to your your listeners, you don't have to be the funniest guy in the room, man. I mean, self-deprecating humor, you can poke fun at yourself. And and even if you're not the kind of guy that says funny things, it takes two part of the, the humor equation. You know, you can laugh, and, and, and then people who say funny things appreciate that. So you can definitely use it to put life in perspective and and. I think you should use it. I think it's it's a big secret weapon that very few people use, and and it's out there for you. Yeah, and boy, you just raised a really good point. You know, I I think particularly in the classic era of uh, late night TV uh, talk shows, you know, you get your Johnny Carson, you know, and he'll say a joke and no one responds. He goes, "Oh, that went well." Uh, you know, <laughs> oh, he was so good at that. You know, right? or, like, his, you know, his David, comeback was funnier. Yeah, he almost opened it. Yeah, David bomb, Letterman yeah. was classic for that. Oh, did you not hear me? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you gotta love that, and that is that you know self-deprecating you know self-deprecating humor really is uh, again a very powerful tool on so many levels. Not just for those that you're trying to influence, which is a phenomenal way of leveraging it, but for yourself as well. I think we live in a culture where really most of the stuff, not a culture, we live in a world where most of the things that are going on are so average. But we have such an attitude of grandiosity and self-importance, and uh, you know, and that's cultivated. It's cultivated by the culture. And the more we can treat things as average, and guess what? Average means we do silly things, sometimes even ridiculous, certainly laughable things. And the more we do that, I think the happier we are. Absolutely. And let's, let's take your late night example, for example. David Letterman used to do this top ten list, you remember. And, and one of the top ten lists was poking fun at Chris Christie. And it was a bunch of fat jokes, that sort of thing. And then Chris Christie decided to go on to the show himself, right, go into the lion's den. And, and as Letterman is interviewing him, Chris Christie pulls out a glazed donut and starts eating it in the middle of the interview. And says, man, I, I didn't know this was going to take this long. Well, this caught the attention of these researchers at East Carolina University, and so they, they showed one group the the top ten list making fun of him video. The other group, they showed the, the donut video, and the people and, – and, and it's remarkable, same topic, same venue, same person. But the people who saw the donut video said they were more likely to vote for Chris Christie and found him to be a more likable person, and everything was the same other than who brought it up. And so it's a very powerful tool, and, and just like you said, even in even in late night. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know we're about to play Beat the Clock. Uh, why don't we kind of begin to wrap it up with some final thoughts and some takeaways, and how do people get the book? So you get the book uh, by going on rickkeller.net. You can also get it on Amazon, and it's coming out on the 27th, so it's available now, though, for purchase. I would say the biggest takeaway for folks in life is you're going to have um, a fork in the road, and you're going to have to choose, do I, do I play it safe, or do I chase my dreams and chase the bears? And when you reach that fork in the road, I, I hope you chase the freaking bears. Yeah, and that's R-I-C for Rick, just for FYI. R-I-C, Keller.net, yes. Yeah, make sure you check that out. Final thoughts on politics today. Are you glad you're not in Congress? Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm asked that all the time. I just wrote a a article called uh, "The Rules of Civility for a for a sometimes uncivilized world," and so I, I'm disappointed that it is so caustic up there. But I I think we could 
turn it around. I, I think in terms of wrap up, num- number one, start listening to people with an open mind. Num- number two, you don't have to agree on everything or, or anything. Just don't be a jerk. Just just be respectful in your response. And, and number three, if you and I, there are ten things and we agree on seven of them, that doesn't make you the enemy, man. You know, you, you could be my best ally today on something you oppose me today. So, so you still got to be courteous to your opponents. And I think if people will, will remember those three things and, and act that way, we're going we're gonna to move the ship in the right direction. Yeah, they would destroy you without that kind of attitude today. I mean, just, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> just based, based on what I've seen, it's insane. Uh, you know, uh, well, who, yeah. I'm not sure who it was, but the old cartoons about 50 years old, I, I've seen the enemy and they are us. Uh, yeah. You know, it really is that culture, and, and people are, you know, and I, I would add to this, uh, I do a lot of conversation about this on my on uh, my show, you know, read opinions that you don't agree with. I, I'm, I'm right of center. Uh, I used to be hard right, but I saw how dangerous that was. I'm right of, right of center with a strong libertarian streak. Uh, so I, but I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post because I need my views challenged, and I don't need to be in an echo chamber, and I need to know how to respect others. You can't respect others if you're not even willing to look at what they believe. And so uh, I'm with you on that. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much. Rick Keller, that's R-I-C-K-E-L-L-E-R.net. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. been a pleasure. I'm Kevin Price. This is The Price of Business. Stay tuned for more.